We are currently in a theme called Rooted in Christ, where we are thinking about how we can live out the words of our churchwide life verses for 2022, which come from Colossians chapter 2. You will see these words on the screen. Let's say them together. And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow. Here at Valley Point, we are giving our year to consider how we can let our roots grow down into Christ or how we can be rooted in him, truly rooted in Christ and deepening our friendship with him. Today, we are going to give our time as we continue thinking about core beliefs to Christianity that will help us become rooted in Christ. We are going to give our time to what theologians call ecclesiology. Ecclesiology, now that's not a word we use that much, but it is something that Christians practice. But it's not like we walk around and say, hey, how's your ecclesiology, man? We don't do that. It would be a bit odd. But this is actually a beautiful word that comes from two different Greek words. Ecclesiology comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which refers to any type of gathering of people. But what's unique about this word is that it always refers to people. It's not about a place. It's not about a building. When you see ekklesia used throughout the New Testament, it's always referring to a group of people that are gathered. The second word is ology, which means knowledge or study of. So when you put these two words together, ecclesia and ology, we are talking about a study of a gathered group of people or, in theological terms, a study of the gathered church which is very close to the heart of God. And keep that in mind as we move through our time, the church, that's us. People who have trusted in the leadership and forgiveness that God offers through Jesus Christ. That is the body of Christ, the church. And the church is very close to the heart of God. But if you take a casual look, even just a casual look, at the church at large, it seems like it's kind of in trouble. The general landscape of the church is filled with scandal, ineffectiveness, conflict, and decline. These seem to be the marks of the church, not just in America, but around the world. Gallup recently reported that Americans' membership in houses of worship, continued to decline, dropping below 50% for the first time in Gallup's eight-decade trend, which is really a remarkable thing. In 2020, 47% of Americans said they belonged to a church, down from 50% in 2018 and 70% in 1999. So religious activity, 
and engagement in the church is not on the rise. It's actually declining. Get this, U.S. church membership was 73%. It's pretty high when Gallup first measured this in 1973, and it remained near 70% for the next six decades before beginning a steady decline at the turn of the 21st century. So the question is, why is there a decline? Why did it used to be at 70% for a very long time? And why did it drop? Well, Gallup stated that the decline in church membership is a primary function of those who no longer attach themselves to any type of religion or house of worship. I think you'll find this to be interesting. Over the past two decades, the percentage of Americans who do not identify with any religion has grown from 8% in 2000 to 13% in 2010 and 21% over the past three years. Data from another survey actually put that at closer to 23.7%. This group is called the nuns. And not the nuns that you're thinking of from your parochial school days, but N-O-N-E-S, or individuals who have no religious affiliation at all. So when you think about this, it would appear just from the data that the church has a problem because it is declining and that trend seems to be continuing. And I think we all know you can only decline so much before there is a significant problem and you potentially lose everything and lose influence. What's interesting about this is that it seems to contradict the rapid rise and the explosive growth of Christianity in the first three centuries. So let's go back in time where we find Christianity really expanding and exploding. Think about this. Even with negative consequences for becoming a Christian in the early days of the forming of the church, and we know based on historical accounts that there were consequences for apprenticing with Jesus, for identifying with the way of Jesus, for attaching yourself to him, and to his followers. People were imprisoned for doing that. People were beat, and people died. They were killed for their faith in Christ. Yet what we know is many people made this choice. Like, yes, I want to be with Jesus. I want to apprentice with him, even though it may cost my life. This is what I want to do. Scholar Larry Hurtado wrote a book called Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? And he noted this. From our earliest sources, it is clear that at a very early point, the movement that became Christianity practically exploded translocally and continued that geographical spread all through the early centuries. Rodney Stark, a sociologist, estimates that Christianity grew from a tiny movement on the edge of the Roman Empire, right? Just Jesus and a few followers. So this tiny little movement on the edge of the Roman Empire 
Rodney Stark estimates that it grew at 40% per decade until it became the dominant faith of Western civilization by the year 350. So in the first three centuries, just a lot of growth and expansion. Now it would appear, at least in the American church, that there is no growth, certainly no explosive growth within Christianity. In fact, it's declining, and it has been for some time. So does the church have a problem? Do we, as an organization, have a problem? Have Christians become settled and soft? Well, I want to share a big idea with you that will frame all of our conversation, and I think that will help us think through this, and this is also where we will bring some hope into the equation, because there is still hope, for the church of Jesus Christ, and I think we'll all walk out of here in a few moments, hopefully energized with what God wants to do in and through believers, in and through his church. So here's our big idea. I would encourage you to take some good notes, fill in some of these blanks so that you can go back in the middle of the week and review our content. The big idea, and that is the church is God's primary way to accomplish his purposes on earth. And I think we could add a little word in there and say that the church is still God's primary way of accomplishing his purposes here on earth, even with the decline and even with some of the issues and the loss of influence, the church, the body, the bride of Christ is still the primary way that God chooses to accomplish his purposes here on earth. God has the full capacity. Consider this for a moment. God has the full capacity to do whatever he wants in terms of accomplishing his will and making the name of Jesus known. God can do whatever he wants. But the church is still God's primary way of making the name of Jesus famous. So perhaps, perhaps, and this is what we want to consider, a study in ecclesiology, which is the church gathered. It's people. It's not a building. It's not a structure. When we think about ecclesia, it's a group of people. It's the church. So perhaps a study in ecclesiology will help stir our souls a little bit And help us to know that being rooted in Christ is a beautiful thing that makes his name famous and allows the church to accomplish the purposes of God. So here's how we will approach this today. Here's our walking path. I want to talk about the formation of the church. So when did it actually begin? Church didn't always exist. So when did we this whole organization that we're a part of. When did it actually form? We'll think about that. And then we'll look at some figures that describe the church. There are many throughout the New Testament that paint a picture of what the church is like. We're going to look at a few figures. And then we'll talk about the purpose of the church. Why do we actually exist? And what we find in Scripture is that the purpose from many years ago 
is the same purpose today and in unique ways. Our church and many other churches are living this out in dynamic and practical ways. And so we'll think about the purpose of the church. And then I have just one question about the church that hopefully will stir us and encourage us. And then we'll get to our practical and helpful takeaways. So that's our outline, okay? Just so you know where we're going. Formation of the church, figures that describe the church, the purpose of the church, one question about the church, and then takeaways. Okay, let's think about the formation of the church. When did it actually begin? Well, here's something that's interesting. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, we find that Jesus is having a conversation with some different people, and he makes this statement. I will build my church. Wow, that's what Jesus actually said. Here's what I'm going to do, just so you know, so there's no questions. I will build my church. But when Jesus said that, he was pointing to something that hadn't occurred yet. The church wasn't established. It hadn't begun. He's pointing to something in the future. So when did the church actually begin? Well, I believe what we see based on Scripture is that the church began officially after Jesus rose from the dead, and a few days after that, he ascended and returned to heaven. And then there was a group of believers gathered, the Holy Spirit fell on them and indwelled them, and they began to function together as an organization. I believe it is on that day, which theologians call the day of Pentecost, that the church officially began. We actually see this in the New Testament book of Acts chapter 2. With your copy of the Bible or with your device, I would encourage you to join me in Acts. We're going to look at chapter 2 beginning with verse 1. The New Testament book of Acts comes after all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Acts was written by St. Luke the Evangelist, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. The book of Acts is actually a sequel to Luke's gospel, so we're picking up on things here after Jesus has returned to heaven. Here's Acts chapter 2, verse 1. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit. And remember, we talked about God the Holy Spirit a few weeks ago. He's part of the triunity. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So here's God the Holy Spirit in action, and he gave people the ability to speak in other languages as he empowered them. Now, I will say this. Sometimes I think we read that passage in Acts chapter 2 and our weird meter goes up a little bit. Like, what? It's kind of a bizarre thing, isn't it? I mean, there's believers gathering. 
which is what they were told to do by Jesus. And they're gathering and praying and doing the things that they were doing there. And the Holy Spirit came upon them. And there's flames of fire above their head. There's the rush of wind. And there's a lot of volume surrounding all of this. And they begin speaking in different languages. This is a little odd. It's a little out there. And it was. And it wasn't. People noticed that. And God used this to launch the church actually into missional activity, which we will read about at the end of Acts chapter 2 in just a moment. So this is the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes. Jesus has returned to heaven. God the Spirit comes, and people begin forming this relationship called the church, and they're functioning in a better together kind of way. And I believe, and many scholars agree with this, there are some who disagree, But there's great scholarship surrounding the fact that this is when the church began officially. Jesus is gone, the Holy Spirit comes, and the church launches. So that's the formation. It's when the church began on the day of Pentecost. Now, how does the Bible actually describe the church? And this is where we get a picture of what the church is like. There are many different figures used throughout the Bible. It's interesting because in his classic book, The Images of the Church in the New Testament, Paul Menier outlines 90 different analogies, 96 actually, different analogies that paint a picture of the church. I thought it would be appropriate to walk through all 96 today. So get your pen ready. No, we're not going to do that. I would encourage you to grab that book if you want to see the beauty and the pictures of the church in action. It's pretty powerful. Or even as you're walking through your own chair time with God and as you have your worship time and your reading, as you see a picture, mark it and know what that is so you can see the joy and the beauty of the church described. I'm just going to share two different pictures, two different analogies, and you've probably heard these two before, but I want to walk through them because I believe they are capacious. One is the church as a body. So let's just paint a picture. What is the church like? Well, the church is like a body that has many different parts, many different pieces, but yet there is just one body. Turn with me, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to read verse 12 and then just make some comments on some of the verses that follow because this is where we see this picture of the church as a body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 says, "...the human body has many parts." But the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. One body, lots of different parts and pieces. And one piece or one part cannot say, well, because I don't do this or that, I'm not part of the body. That's not the way it works. And that's what the rest of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 describes. Verse 14 talks about the foot and the hand. Verse 16 talks about the ear and how they are single parts, 
but yet they are a full part of the whole body. Verse 17 is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible because I think it's kind of sarcastic and funny. It asks the question, what if the whole body were an eye? Which is kind of creepy to consider, isn't it? Like imagine if you came into church someday and you sat down and sitting next to you is just an eyeball. It's just creepy. And we would probably step out and say, I can't be here anymore because this is not a good situation. Well, that's what the Apostle Paul is describing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It doesn't work that way. The body has all of these different parts. They come together to form one body. And this is a picture of the church. He concludes all of this in verse 27 by saying, all of you together, okay? So if you have embraced Jesus Christ, if you have trusted in him alone to rescue you, You indeed are part of the body of Christ. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part in it. We all have a role to play, different parts, different abilities and skills, but yet there is one body. That is a picture of what the church is like. The second picture is the church as a bride with Christ as the groom. I want you to turn with me to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. This is what we find starting in verse 28. And again, think of the church as the bride of Christ. Here's verse 28, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds it and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. I think the bride image is noteworthy because it implies unity and intimacy like nothing else. Church is the bride of Christ. And there's intimacy and there is unity there that is strong and real and holds us together. So when you think of the church, allow a couple of these images to come into your mind. The church is a body, lots of different parts, but one body. The church is also the bride of Christ. It belongs to him. Okay, let's talk purpose. Why does the church actually exist? Why do we gather on Sunday? What are we supposed to be doing? Well, if you go back to Acts chapter 2, I want you to look at verse 42. There is one verse here that describes and outlines for us the purpose of the church. And here it is. All the believers, they devoted themselves. And you see that word devoted there? If you like to highlight and underline, I would encourage you to grab that word because it's dynamic in the text. It means to persist or to keep on doing this and don't give up. And so the picture we have here is that all of these believers, and keep in mind, Jesus is gone. He's no longer here on earth, but the Holy Spirit has come. He has now empowered these believers and they are persisting in doing some things. 
They are keeping on with these tasks, and here is the purpose of the gathered church. So they persisted. They kept on devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. So right here in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, there are three categories that describe the purpose of the church. There's teaching and fellowship, and I'll use the word worship, which captures a lot of the things that are said in this verse. Teaching, fellowship, and worship. Let's think about these three words. Teaching, the word used here, comes from the Greek word didache, which implies instruction or doctrine or content about the message of Christ. So let's just put this together again. These believers, they're persisting, they're keeping on with instruction and doctrine and content related to the person of Christ. And guess what? <laughs> All of these years later, here we are, and we're opening up the Word of God, and we're persisting, we're trying to stay awake, and we're trying to dig deep into this and think about doctrine like ecclesiology and other core beliefs of Christianity. We're committing ourselves to the purpose of the church, which was established a long time ago, in teaching this way. It's a beautiful thing. The word fellowship comes from the Greek word koinonia, and it has the idea of close mutual association, of sharing, and of participation together. And so here we find these believers. They're persisting in being closely connected with other believers and in sharing and in providing, and God used this purpose to make a big difference. What about the word worship? Well, I believe this captures the other phrases found in verse 42, like sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. And I think it also encompasses the teaching of the Word of God, the reading of it, and certainly the teaching of it. The early church's worship was really more of a full spiritual meal. When they gathered, there was prayer. And they paused to do that. There was the reading of Scripture and the teaching of doctrine and the message of Christ. It was singing and responding to the greatness of God. These three components capture the purpose of the church gathering. Teaching, fellowship, and worship. I do believe as you walk through the New Testament, you see another purpose of the church that is attached to the gathering and I'll use the word scattering to describe this particular purpose. So the church gathers for teaching, for fellowship, and for worship, but then the church scatters to share the message of Jesus. If you look at Acts chapters 10, 11, and 14, you find the church expanding in some pretty significant ways. Again, when it costs people a lot to make that kind of decision, the church didn't just gather they also scattered, and I think these two words effectively capture the purpose of the church. There's a gathering component, and there is a scattering component as well, and it helps us to know this. 
Here's what theologian Elaine Robinson said. We are not to be hidden away in a building or inwardly focused, but actively going out into the world to represent Christ. I think this captures the idea of the gathering and how it builds us, and then the scattering, taking the message of Jesus out to those who need it. Okay, one question. What is the church for? And maybe let me ask it this way. Who is the church for? Who is the church for? How you answer that will determine your ecclesiology, the formation of the church and its purpose. So who is the church for? I would imagine people may answer that in different ways. Here at Valley Point, we practice it this way. The church is for everybody, right? Church is for everybody. It's for those who love it and for those who hate it. It's for those who follow the way of Jesus and are apprenticing with him and for those who don't care about Jesus at all or are confused by how he acted and what he said. It's for those who are down and out and broken. It's also for those who are successful in life. The church is for everybody because there is power in ecclesia that has the ability to bring a diverse group of people together so that they can gather to accomplish the purposes of the church and then scatter to take the message of Jesus to as many as possible. So who is the church for? Church is for everybody. It's for everybody. And may we never forget that as we come together and as we practice ecclesiology, that we open the doors and whoever comes, comes. And we don't stand out there and ask who they are or what they've done or what they believe or even who they voted for. We just open the doors and give everybody a cup of coffee if you like that. If not, sorry. But it's available for you and you sit down and we love people and we give them Jesus because the church is for everybody. Everybody. Again, may we never forget that. I have two takeaways. Number one, love the church. Love the church for it is the bride of Christ. And to speak negatively of the church or hateful of the church or in harmful ways about the church, you're talking about someone's bride and that's never a good thing to do. So love the church for it is the bride of Christ. Love how God is using it, still using it to accomplish his purposes. No church is perfect, but we are the bride of Christ and brides are beautiful. All brides are beautiful. One of the fun things that I get to do as a pastor is I have the privilege and the honor of officiating a lot of weddings. And I can guarantee you every bride is beautiful. Every single one. So think about this for a moment. God looks at you as the bride of Christ. You are beautiful. If you've trusted in Christ and you're part of the church, you are his bride and you are beautiful no matter how you feel about yourself, no matter what someone else may say about you, no matter what has happened in your life. 
you are a bride and you are beautiful. And can I just say, you all look fantastic today. You look beautiful. So smile and rejoice in the fact that you are the bride of Christ. And brides are beautiful. Brides are beautiful. The second takeaway, build up the church by by practicing theology outside the church. Now, we certainly want to practice theology inside the church, but we do that in natural ways, and that's a little easier for us than practicing theology outside the church. But one scholar said it this way, the home, the brokerage firm, the auto dealership, the gym, and the concert hall all belong to Christ. Our work in these settings is as much Christian ministry as anything that goes on in the building. And when that occurs, the church is being built. Back to the big idea. The church is still, still, even though it may be on the decline and maybe not as influential as it used to be, the church is still, as the bride of Christ, the primary way that God is choosing to accomplish his purposes in the world. So let's go out and be the church. Father, we are so thankful for some time today to look at Acts chapter 2 and these descriptions of the church forming. The purposes that are described here are still for us today. And uniquely, God, you're helping us as a faith community to live these things out right here as we gather and as we scatter and go out to where we live, work, and play and make a difference for you. So God, while it seems like the church is struggling and there are a lot of issues and no church is perfect, would you use our faith community Would you use Valley Point to kind of push back the darkness a little bit in our corner of the world? In our context? As we gather and as we scatter to just make a difference here. May we practice ecclesiology in ways that brings honor to you as the body of Christ all of these different people and parts and skills and abilities, but yet one body. And as the bride of Christ, may we walk with confidence that we are loved and beautiful and part of something that you are still using to share the life-changing message of Jesus. We thank you for this time. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.